Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Today's episode is going to be another one in a series that I'm calling Beyond Asana. Asana, for those who aren't regular yoga practitioners, you know, it's been translated in a couple of different ways from Sanskrit. It means sort of posture or seat, but colloquially in the yoga world, it's often used as a phrase just referring to the physical practice of yoga. And one thing that I've been trying to do on the show is to raise awareness around the richness of the yoga tradition beyond just the physical practice of yoga. That's not to dismiss it at all. I think the physical practice is wonderful and it's absolutely crucial. It's a vital part of the larger and much richer, deeper meaning of of what yoga is. And I think it's also the most appropriate and common entry point for many people into a lot of these other understandings of of yoga. Usually the beginning of people's yoga journey is, is the physical practice, going into a yoga studio. It certainly was for me. That said, you know, traditionally in India, what yoga has meant, of course, it's evolved so much over time uh, and it changed across different traditions. But what, what seems to be quite unique is to late 20th century, early 21st century yoga in the West, the, the emphasis on the physical practice of yoga relative to all of the other aspects of it. And the prominence given to that physical practice is what makes it very unique. That's how Western cultures have sort of reinterpreted yoga and given it a new meaning or new emphasis. But while I love the physical practice, I think there is ultimately it really is an entry point for going so much deeper into yoga. You know, that that quote from the Gita, which I referenced in a blog post of mine, you know, it's yoga is the journey of the self, through the self, to the self, is while we can't pin down any one definition, I think that's sort of a wonderful, wonderful phrase that invites us into the inner experience of of what yoga is, you know. So anyways, in this series, which I'm having with a number of different speakers, I'm going to explore this topic in, in different ways. Jay Brown is a great guest to for exploring this topic. And I started to touch on it in my last episode. And today's episode with Mark Schwema is another wonderful conversation and a great resource for someone, for those of you who are interested in sort of these conversations of yoga beyond asana. I should give a bit of a disclaimer about how I know Mark and Mark's going to give his his bio and his intro in the conversation, so I'll let him do that. But just some background, I actually know Mark because I did a course with Mark's primary teacher, Paul Muller Ortega. Paul Muller Ortega is a scholar of Indian religions and philosophies, particularly a it might be wrong to call it a school. I suppose it's a series of schools, but what's often called non-dual Shaiva Tantra or Kashmir Shaivism, but those are really just expressions. Kashmir Shaivism really refers to a series of different lineages 
that existed in northern India. And anyways, I, I won't say too much about it. I'll let Mark explain it. But And we do talk about what Tantra is in the conversation. But that's how I know Mark, because Mark was is a senior student and teacher in Paul Muller-Ortega's Blue Throat Yoga and, and teaches his introductory Entering the Heart of Shiva course. And when I took the Entering the Heart of Shiva course, Mark was one of the co-teachers of the course. And after the course ended, we always kind of actually connected around the fact that we were both expats in Asia, Mark in Japan and I in Thailand. But we got to know each other a little bit afterwards. We met in person at a retreat for Paul in California. And then when Mark came to Thailand to study Qigong, and we touch on this later in the podcast, ironically, with someone who I had already studied with and done the teacher training a year before, Tevia Fang's White Tiger Qigong, which is definitely a great practice for any of you who are interested in learning Qigong. I would certainly recommend checking out White Tiger Qigong. But So I, I had this personal relationship with Mark and I, I've gotten to know him more over time and just sort of throwing that out there as a little bit of context. If we seem kind of friendly, like we know each other, it's it's because we do prior to this conversation. And this is something that I guess just a last note kind of on on this series, you know, I'm considering the first episode with Jay, which I released prior to this part of the Beyond Asana series, but um, I just got the idea kind of after the episode, frankly, and, and before I recorded this one with Mark. So I want to address it a little bit more here. You know, my yoga journey, I've said, started out about eight years ago when I moved to Thailand and I was really struggling with my life being a lot, very out of balance, mentally, physically, not being mindful at all about the way I live my life you know, abusing substances, mainly alcohol, not eating right, not exercising, you name it. And yoga, along with Buddhism and the practice of meditation, really brought that sense of balance. And for a long time, several years, I would say Buddhism and meditation and the practice of yoga was was kind of where I stayed with respect to my relationship, I guess you could say, to that journey. You know, I, I read a lot of Buddhist books, for example, and I, I did a little bit of mindfulness practice, but, and I was going to yoga class very regularly, but my understanding of yoga was still very much confined to the physical practice. And it really wasn't until five years later that I really took a deep dive. So I did my first yoga teacher training. And I, I think actually what, actually, I don't think, I know what really provoked it was it was a reaction to doing a year of grad school. I did a, a very intensive graduate program in master's in education, a teacher training that's normally a two-year program. And I did it in this program at Stanford. It packs it into 12 months. And it was just about the most intense, stressful thing I've ever done. I wouldn't say just about. It was the most intense, stressful thing I've ever done, at least work-wise. And when I came back to Thailand, readjusted to life in Asia you know, I'd just gotten engaged and I was I was trying to establish some kind of harmony with new work-life balance, being engaged and all these different things. And my life was very out of balance from that year of intensive study. And then I hadn't quite found my footing right away when I came back to Thailand in those first couple months. And so I actually realized I'd, I'd kind of slipped and, and fallen out of my yoga practice a bit over the last year, which I'd been quite committed to before. And so I really, really committed to doing yoga again on 
a daily basis and I was doing it intensively for several months and then decided I was going to do a teacher training in the summer of 2015 in Bali. And that really started, I would say, the trajectory where I'm on today. You know, I can say it certainly originally began in when I first moved to Thailand in 2010, but doing that teacher training really helped me implement a lot of the ideas that I was reading about. I think it really, it sort of helped me develop a routine around a lot of these practices and such as a seated meditation practice and to develop a personal yoga practice. And what it did and of relevance to this conversation is it really enriched my understanding of yoga beyond just the physical practice. So I did, you know, I studied what's kind of common in yoga teacher trainings, the classical yoga system of Patanjali, which I'll touch on in my conversation with Mark. Why it's it's interesting that that's kind of become the classic text instead of ideas that people study when in many ways the yoga articulated by Patanjali does not make the most sense for people to study in the West for a number of reasons. It's not the actual where most of the philosophical systems that really underpin yoga come from as much. It's not where as many of the physical postures come from. It was designed more for renunciates than householders, a number of reasons that Mark will touch on. But nonetheless, you know, it really, it hooked my interest in yoga philosophy. And since that time over the last three years, I've really immersed myself in, in studying the various philosophies and religious traditions of India, particularly as they relate to yoga. And I've done that with a series of great teachers who I've referenced before on this podcast. And some of them I've had on this podcast, you know, Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor are two that come to mind. And those are two teachers who teach yoga in a way that is just completely holistic, very vigorous asana practice, physical practice, but very much about a larger path of awakening, emphasizing all the different other practices of yoga from mantra and chanting to pranayama and meditation. And I've also studied with the two other teachers that really jump out. I should say I've studied a bit with Harish Wallace, which is very interesting and, and took some great courses with him online on the Yoga Sutras and the Recognition Sutras. Also, I've been studying with Sally Kempton, who's wonderful and who will be coming on this podcast very soon as part of this series, Beyond Asana. And the other two teachers that really stand out are Douglas Brooks and Paul Muller Ortega. And so... Taking that course with Paul and how I met Mark was really part of a journey, like I said, that I've, I've been on more the last few years, and I guess the last two in particular. And so Mark has been a, a great resource in my own intellectual development on this path. And it's not only an intellectual journey, but it's also a deeply contemplative one. It's not meant to be mere theoretical or academic knowledge, but also practical knowledge, you know, not just knowledge, but but wisdom as well. And so Mark's a wonderful resource and I, I had a great time talking to him and sort of having him share not only his wisdom about Shaiva Tantra and yoga and various contemplative practices. We also talk later in the conversation about expat life abroad and how that can really be a powerful way of sort of getting outside your comfort zone and reflecting on your own sort of identity and your hangups and your attachments. So I really enjoyed my conversation with Mark. I hope that you 
do as well. I'm sure that you will. For those of you, I just want to give you a heads up where you can find Mark, markshwamayoga.com. And he teaches with Paul Muller Ortega, which you can find on bluethroatyoga.com. And with that said, I just want to say a, a final pitch and note. Thank you so much to all the folks who have been supporting the show on Patreon and continue to do so. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd ask that maybe you consider supporting the show on Patreon for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive access to all of the additional bonus content of this show. That's often the last sort of third of the conversation to maybe even half of it, along with additional content that I release online. That's for just $2 or more a month. And there's also other options released at different levels of support. Finally, there are other ways to support the podcast as well. You know, just sharing it with your friends and family on social media. Finally, leaving a review on any of your favorite podcasting platforms like iTunes, Google, or Stitcher really, really is a big help for helping to raise the profile of the podcast. And it just takes a couple minutes of time. Finally, I want to say, I just added a new feature onto the website of hackingtheself.org. Thanks to my fantastic IT guy who's really savvy and does this all out of the kindness of his heart, John Cork. John has added a feature onto the site that allows people to sign up for email updates because several people had asked for that, asking for how they can receive any kind of updates around upcoming podcast episodes, your blog posts, or any other updates about the site. I'll be very sensitive. And in fact, I think I'll pull people about how often they wish to receive updates because I think all of us know we don't want our email boxes filled with too much stuff. We already have enough. But for those of you who do want to receive updates, you now have that option to sign up, which you'll find on the website. So thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark Schwema. All right. Well, with that said, let me just begin by thanking you so much, Mark, for making the time to speak with me. I've really enjoyed studying with you in the past and, and getting to know you a bit personally since then. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today. Well, thank you, Adrian, for having me on. I really appreciate being invited on to your show I listen to your show and I think it's an excellent show. So I'm glad that I can contribute to it in some way. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mark. I appreciate the compliment. So let's just begin. And, and I've read, you know, in the introduction for our audience a bit about your background, but particularly because this conversation is going to be one as part of a larger series that I'm doing around Beyond Asana, in which I'm really trying to help people deepen their understanding of yoga beyond the physical practice. And I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit about your own journey to yoga and specifically if you can, after providing a little context, how you first came across it, then talk about how that relationship really began to shift for you, sort of when and where and why in terms of when your relationship to yoga started to deepen beyond just the physical practice. Well, I began the physical practice to support my martial arts practice at the time. I wanted to study martial arts, and what happened was the woman I was dating at the time, she brought a yoga videotape. So that gives you an idea of my age. She brought a yoga videotape home, and she said, hey, let's try and practice this. What do you think? And I thought, sure, why not? So we practiced it together, and I found it challenging and 
in an enjoyable way. And even though, you know, when we parted ways, I kept the video and <laughs> continued to practice. Um, and she got the dog, you got the video. Exactly. And so I eventually returned the video to her after acquiring about six or seven different videos at the time from different teachers and creating my own kind of practice around those videos every day, doing about an hour or so of practice. And using that as kind of a way to gain a little more flexibility to then enter into the arena of martial arts. And so then I was in tandem practicing yoga on my own, practicing hatha yoga, physical practice on my own at my apartment, at my house. And then from there, I was practicing martial arts with a teacher. So I wasn't really taking yoga classes. I was just practicing the videotape. And at the same time, I introduced my mom to the videotape. And she enjoyed it. And then she was going to her local YMCA and there was a yoga teacher there. And she says to the yoga teacher, my son practices at home. And the teacher said, oh, bring him in. And so I went in, I took her class. And afterwards, she said to me six words that pretty much changed the trajectory of my life. She said, have you ever thought about teaching? And I was like, well, no, I have not. But I've taught things before and I always found it to be a really interesting exchange to be able to give somebody some kind of knowledge that you have and for them to benefit from it. So I thought, oh, this sounds pretty interesting. So sure, let me give it a try. And so that's how I got into Hatha Yoga, practicing and then teaching. So from there, I was, at that time, I was living in Pennsylvania. That's where I grew up. And after practicing and teaching around there a little bit, I moved to San Francisco, spent six years there. And it was really in San Francisco that I got to refine my Hatha Yoga practice in a really huge way because I met so many fantastic teachers there with really deep knowledge about the practice and was very fortunate actually to be guided to each teacher by the previous teacher. I had this kind of, it was very interesting. I would I went to one class when I got to San Francisco and in that class, one of the other students and I started talking afterwards and the student said, hey, you should try this teacher's class. And I said, oh, okay, sure. You know, I'm new to San Francisco. This is the first class I've taken. So I went to that teacher's class and I was just blown away by what they were teaching and I became a very devoted student of their teaching and their practice. And then after two years with them, they said, hey, you should try this person now as a teacher. And so I went to that person's class and then that person after two years said, hey, you should try this style of yoga. I think you'd like it. And so I tried another teacher that they introduced me to. And eventually that led actually to my my meditation practice and my meditation kind of sadhana that I've been doing now for a decade because it was teacher to teacher. And finally, one teacher brought my teacher, Paul Muller-Otega, to his event. And I saw Paul there and I was blown away by what he was saying. So that's what got me to then move toward the non-physical practice of yoga in that way, even though I'd had interest prior to that, prior to that. So that, that was a really great kind of stream of teachers guiding me to teacher, to teacher, to teacher, to eventually reach this place where I am now. So Mark, I know this just from sort of your bio, that sort of stream of teachers included eventually finding John Friend in Anusara. And I'm always balancing, you know, some people who listen to the show are like real, probably yoga diehards and, and know that name and Anusara and others don't. So I'm always trying to strike the balance between going to inside baseball or not, but I know that'll be familiar to a lot of listeners. And it does seem to be, be a very common theme from what I can tell studying with people like Paul that they came across 
a lot of these well-known teachers and scholars through Anusara initially. And so was that the case in your situation? Did you meet Paul through Anusara or through an Anusara connection? Yes, I did, actually. What happened was, as I was saying, I had a teacher in San Francisco who then introduced me to another teacher who then introduced me to a style, and the style was Anusara and a teacher in that style. So I started practicing Anusara, and then I eventually met John, and I started practicing with John quite a bit. I was going to a lot of his events and his trainings and his courses, and I was actually assisting him at several different of those events, both in America and in Japan. And through him, then I met Paul, because in 2007, Paul came to an event that John was holding, a large one of his kind of intensive weeks of practice. And usually how John would begin his teaching for the day he would sit, pick a philosophical topic, and then he would talk about it. And then that philosophical topic would become the theme for the asana practice that we would do, the hatha yoga practice. And so that day, that week, he had Paul as a guest kind of speaker. And it was really interesting because three weeks prior to that event, I was talking to my girlfriend at the time, and I said, you know, I don't need any more hatha yoga teachers. I've studied with so many great teachers. I have so much great information from them to sift through and to keep refining. That what I really want, what I really would love to find is somebody who was really deeply integrated in the meditation practice, and particularly in some kind of tantric practice, because that's what I was kind of leaning towards thanks to what I discovered through Anasara in a very foundational way, of course. And then when I went to this event, you know, Paul, Paul appeared there, of course. John said at the beginning, he says, okay, we're going to talk about Satchidananda, which was a favorite topic of his. He said, today we're going to talk about Satchidananda. And he gave like a basic definition of it, maybe like five minutes. And then he turned to Paul and said, Paul, what would you say about this topic? What, what's your kind of you know idea about this? And then Paul just spoke for about an hour and a half. And what was interesting to me, because I didn't know Paul at all at that point, of course, I just met him. And John was a teacher I respected at that time. And John, my teacher, then stepped over to the side of the stage and he put on his reading glasses and he started taking notes from what Paul was saying. And so I thought, well, my teacher's taking notes from this guy. I definitely better pay attention. Um, so then I listened and listened and... The second day, you know, he did this every day. He started with the talk and then just said, Paul, what do you, you know, what's your view on this? And the second day, Paul said this phrase. He said, Visarga Shakti. And when he said it, I felt my body just simultaneously expand into the size of this huge kind of almost gymnasium-sized structure that we were practicing in and simultaneously ground deeply into the earth. And it was only about a three or four second experience, but it was powerful. And I thought, hmm, I need to study more with this guy, obviously. So at the time, I then went up right after that morning session and I went up to a person holding his email list and said, hey, I would like to sign up. And so as I'm signing up on the email list, one of the other students of the course that we came by and inquired about Paul and said, hey, I hear Paul is having a year-long immersion kind of course. And the person said, yes, he is. Yes. But it's almost full just by word of mouth. And just from inside of me rose up this answer, just said, I want to join. And so that's what I said. Just, I want to join, just came out. And that was the beginning of my journey with Paul right there. 
your desire initially that sort of pushed you beyond just the physical practice, you know, it sounds like from what I'm hearing from you, it was sort of a desire to learn meditation on a deeper level. I'm just, I'm trying to get at kind of, yeah, what were some of the deeper reasons? Yeah. Meditation and the philosophical concepts and teachings that go along with the Shaiva Tantra tradition. That was really something that intrigued me also. I've always had this, um, I've had this love of structures and of sequences and of kind of like arrays of teaching and how they connect. I love to see the interconnection of things. So with the practices in Anasar that I've been doing, I started to get a little taste of that, looking at basic ideas of the Shaiva Tantra tradition, the tattvas and Shiva Shakti and the Pancha Shaktis and stuff like that. But I really wanted to go deeper. So Paul was perfect guide for that. He's a perfect guide for that. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I'm always just curious what does it for people that kind of pushes them, you know, what what hooks them initially to yoga and then sort of what deepens their journey. So I think at this point we should sort of pause and sort of lay out for people. We mentioned Shiva Tantra right now and we're starting to talk about yoga philosophy. So perhaps we can start to kind of explain the difference for people who might not be familiar, you know, what is non-dual Shaiva Tantra or even Tantra and what really distinguishes this school from sort of the classical yoga or what is normally taught in yoga schools and yoga teacher trainings, that kind of classical yoga potentially. Tantra is a big subject. When we say Tantra, we're talking about a whole group of schools, not just one school, of course. And Nandul Shaiva Tantra is one school under that umbrella of Tantra. Now, Tantra itself comes along right on the heels of what's called classical yoga. And classical yoga rises from the Upanishads from that period. And in particular, it takes a lot from a school called Sankhya, which is a school that actually puts forth this idea of the tattvas, which I mentioned before. And the tattvas are these... um, 36 principles of reality. So this idea of how reality is created and in particular how we are created and how then we act in that reality through our different senses and our action capacities, etc. and the elements that make that we're composed of. So this was an idea brought by this school, the Sankhya school, but it wasn't really in their teaching of Sankhya. The idea was that liberation was something that came through knowledge. There was no kind of, how to say, mystical kind of idea in that practice. There was no idea of exploring consciousness in a meditative manner. And then what happens is classical yoga comes along, and this is the Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, which you began to mention, which is a pretty well-known text for yoga students, even beginner yoga students. Most of them hear about it. And this text, as you have said, it's become a staple text in yoga teacher trainings, and it's become kind of the root text of yoga in general, in the world, really. And it deserves that place because it is a root text of yoga. And at the same time, there has to be the understanding that Patanjali, what he was teaching was for the renunciatory practitioners. So he's teaching it for people who are not starting families, who are not looking to have careers, who are not even interested in in the world in any kind of external way. They wish to move their awareness inside and in that way, completely immerse themselves in their inner self, 
called the Purusha, which I love the definition of Purusha, contentless consciousness, really. And the reason I love this definition is because the other aspect in Patanjali's teachings that goes with Purusha is this idea of Prakriti. And Prakriti means matter or nature. And it basically is saying that everything in this world is composed of Prakriti, this matter, this nature, these primordial kind of raw primordial clay, really, in a way. And that everything is Prakritic, even your thoughts, even your emotions. And then what we have inside of us, inside each of us, is this part of us that is not Prakritic, that is beyond it. And that's the Purusha. But the Purusha is also a part of us. And so this Purusha part of us that's simultaneously within and beyond the Prakritic part of us, this is the place that the renunciatory practitioners were seeking to reach and to immerse themselves in and to eventually be able to just maintain immersion in that 24-7, which would mean actually in the long run that at the highest level of a renunciatory practice, a person goes into that place and never emerges back out. The body will eventually shut down because one is not eating or, or drinking anything. So when I've talked about this sometimes to other people, they, they kind of get a little horrified. They think that's, well, that's suicide. Well, no, because it's these practitioners immersing themselves into their deepest heart of their consciousness. And in their intention, it's because that's where they want to go. They have no desire to be in the world. They have no desire to involve themselves in worldly things. They want to immerse themselves in their own deepest consciousness and reside there. So then Tantra rises in kind of response to Patanjali's teachings of saying, go in, go in, go in, and just go in. And Tantra says, well, wait a minute. What about the householders? What about all of us who are out here in the world doing what we do? And by the way, we're the ones supporting the renunciates because <laughs> we're the ones, you know, making sure they have places to live, making sure they're, they get the food they need, making sure they're taken care of in that way because the renunciates are not working, so to speak. And so the Tantra arises in response to that saying, there is a way to immerse oneself in that Purusha also as a householder, as somebody living in the world, as someone raising children, someone having a family. And also in Tantra, then they say, but see, that's only the first step. The second step then is to move back out of that immersion and still have that Purusha quality to your consciousness so that when you emerge back into your external self from your meditation practice, you are carrying forth a deeper part of your consciousness and you're able then to express yourself in more clear, more concise, more efficient, more effective ways. So it's using that Purusha consciousness to expand your creative power in the world, as opposed to the renunciatory practice, which says we're going to go into that Purusha and we're going to diminish ourselves in the world in a way. We're going to move away from the world. And in a householder practice, we're moving into the world. We're engaging with it in a full way. Just thinking how, as you're talking as well, how, you know, we're talking about the evolution of Samkhya and then classical yoga and Tantra coming on the heels of that. But so much of the message of what you're talking about, this sort of argument with the renunciate schools in sort of articulating a vision for finding that kind of liberation and freedom and practice within the world, how that's a conversation that really even begins in a more prominent way before we, I guess we could view it as kind of the antecedents of Tantra, right? When we think about the Bhagavad Gita or the Mahabharata. 
because I think that's so much of what Krishna's message is, right? Talking about the householder path and sort of following your own dharma and, and how to find that liberation here in the world. I'm curious sort of how you view the relationship of the Gita to those later tantric arguments. I think the Gita is a really interesting text. I love the Gita. And one of the reasons I think it's very interesting is because it kind of plays the line between householder and renunciate. It kind of moves a little bit back and forth between the two. So it almost feels at times that Krishna is saying you have to give up everything and you have to really let go of everything and go within and just immerse yourself in, he says, in me, you know, but you just have to immerse yourself there. And then there's times when he's saying, and then you have to bring it into the world. And so there's an interesting play in the, in the Gita of that pulsation of moving in and moving out. And at times it can seem like he's really emphasizing one or the other. But I think that's a beautiful play within that text. It's almost as if the text is saying both paths are admissible. Both paths are beautiful paths. And they both are. It's just that you have to take the path that is most appropriate for you, which is something that Krishna also says often in the Gita. He says, well, we've got this yoga, and we've got this yoga, and we've got this yoga. You have to do the yoga that's most appropriate for you at the time that you're doing it. See, it's not just appropriate practice. It's what is appropriate at the time of you taking up the practice. So that depends on a lot of life conditions. You know, where are you in your age? Where are you in your life path? Are you moving into new career? Are you moving out of stuff that you've been doing forever? Are you retiring or are you just entering into college? You know, where are you? And see that that's going to depend a lot on how you practice. And I think that's a very important consideration for people to take when they do enter into any kind of quote unquote spiritual practice of sorts is, is the practice going to support me in what I am now taking up? as part of my life? And then ultimately, can I find a practice that will support me through every stage of my life? Because the practice itself will change with me, will actually has different kind of aspects to it that are brought forward for different times of your life, different seasons of your life. Just as during the four seasons, you know, a, a gardener will treat the gardens and the trees in a different way because it's a different season. So you can't treat them in the same way. So... There's a couple of different things you've said that sort of it's a evocative of of sort of some core language around Shaiva Tantra, which is this notion of expansion and contraction, the expansion and contraction of consciousness. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit just about sort of outline that view, sort of the the Shaiva Tantric view on what it's like when we're in an expanded versus a contracted state of consciousness. And then I, I'd love to kind of get into a discussion around how our yoga really helps us to kind of surf these waves. Yes, yes. So expansion and contraction, which are a natural pulsation of life, right? You know, nature does it all the time, expands and contracts, expands and contracts. And we as human beings, you know, we are born... We're this little person and then we're growing, growing, we're expanding, we're expanding, we're expanding. We get involved in the world. Now we're doing things in the world. We're putting ourselves out into the world. We're, we're making a mark on the world in some way, shape or form. So we're expanding our energy and our presence. And then what happens in a normal course of a human life, as we get older and older, we start to tone down, hopefully, the uh, work schedule and we start to move into more of a kind of um, contemplative 
portion of our life where we turn inward even more. Even if we've already been practicing for many decades while we were going to work, while we were doing what we were doing, we're doing householder practices, for example. And then as we get older and older, we start to draw back in. We start to move back away from the world a bit and a bit more and a bit more and a bit more in preparation for leaving the world, really. Because that's the eventuality of all life is eventually it will end. So this contraction and expansion is a natural pulsation of our life and of everything around us. And the Shaiva Tantra, the idea of contraction and expansion originates really at the very heart of the universe. This idea I mentioned before, Paul had mentioned, had said this word, this phrase, Misarga Shakti. It kind of blew me into this simultaneous expansion and then grounding, this kind of contracting down into the earth. And that term, Visarga Shakti, holds that connotation in a way. Shakti means power in Sanskrit, for those who may not be familiar with the Sanskrit words. Shakti means power, but it also, Shakti means the kind of supreme all encompassing creative power of consciousness. And then visarga is this idea of to emit. So something is being emitted out. And so visarga shakti is the shakti that emits itself from the very heart of the universe to fragment like just millions, billions of waves. And those millions and billions of waves form millions and billions of things in the universe. And then every one of those things at some point will be drawn back into the heart of the universe, drawn back through the very center of reality into the beyond reality, reality, into the transcendent. And so there's this pulsation there of everything expanding out from the center and then everything being drawn back into it. And this has, there's actually a Sanskrit word, bindu, and the bindu is the center from which everything expands back out. In, this is in the Nandoshaiva Tantra tradition. The Bindu is the place from which that Visarga Shakti arises and emits out. And then it's the place that that Visarga Shakti coalesces back into and returns. And it's a really just an amazingly beautiful concept, I think. This idea of how everything is just constantly in this play of pulsation. And, you know, and we're talking about one aspect of pul- pulsation, really right? We're talking contraction, expansion. But there's other aspects. And in the, in the Indian tradition, they have really beautiful um, symbolism in one of the central kind of iconographies of the Shaiva Tantra, which is Shiva Nataraja, the cosmic dancer, the lord of the cosmic dance, really. And he, his gestures, in his gestures, there's these five different activities, these five different actions, the panchakrityas, they're called. Pancha means five and kritya means activity or action. And in these five acts, there's not only this idea of something coming forward, like the fragmenting of the wave outward in the Visarga Shakti, a manifestation of sorts, and then something kind of coalescing back in and dissolving. But there's three other actions that are then involved. So you have this manifestation action, manifestational action, but then you have this action of maintenance, So this activity of, okay, something's been brought into being and now it needs to be maintained. And then from the maintenance, there's the dissolution. There's the the destruction of whatever it is in some way, shape or form. And then after that, there's this pause. And in the pause, there's a play. Because in the pause, like one of two things could happen. Either from the pause, one can move into a great insight, which is then the fifth action, which is usually defined as grace, 
this idea that you've been bestowed with some kind of auspicious knowing, the auspicious guidance of some sort, whether it's from inside or outside, and it's somebody else kind of pointing you in the direction or some other sign pointing you in the direction. Or the other option is that you kind of forget about the whole thing and you get caught in your own kind of stuff and you get contracted down into your kind of small self. So it's this beautiful dance. And in that dance, there's this possibility in every moment for these five actions to happen. So the idea is that in each of our lives, moment to moment to moment, in every moment, these five possibilities exist simultaneously. They're always in play. And this speaks to the idea that you were alluding to about how we do get contracted ourselves. We get contracted emotionally. We get contracted physically. We get contracted mentally. And it happens because this is the nature of a human being to some degree, is we come into the world and then we are affected by everything around us because our five senses are feeding us information 24-7. And it's not information we always want to take in, but we just automatically do. You walk through a city and there's all kinds of sounds and noises and billboards and signs. And even if you're not trying to look or hear or touch things, you do. And then you take that in. And then what happens is we start to feel that we're a little kind of contracted in our body, our mind, our hearts. We're feeling not too good about ourselves or we're feeling we're questioning about what we're doing. We're doubting who we are. We're doubting our worth. We're doubting our efficiency. And the idea with Shaiva Tantra, with the Nandal Shaiva Tantra path that I've been practicing for a long time now, is that through the practice, and not just the meditation practice, but through ancillary practices that we have as well, we can release these contractions. We can dissolve them. We can start to let them go. And by doing so, we come into knowing our inherent freedom, our inherent ability to be free. And this freedom is not the freedom of of like a teenager to say, yo, I'm free. I'm going to do whatever I want. And I don't care what anybody else says. It's not that. It's a freedom that says, I'm going to act from my creative power in a way that's beneficent for myself and for others around me. And then I'm going to serve life in a really high way. And in that way, I become an instrument that can help shape the world in a better way. Even if it's only in a small way in my local community, even if it's only with a few people, just to shape that even is powerful. Say more about that, Mark. You started to talk a little bit about some of the ways to release ourselves. What are some of the other ones? You know, just like I'm trying to think because there's a balance here. It's this beautiful, and of course, I also know this having studied with you and Paul. It's this sort of beautiful, elaborate mythology and philosophy, but there's also a lot of pragmatism to it. And I'm wondering, you know, to some folks listening in the audience, what are some of the ways that in daily life we begin to release ourselves? through some of these practices. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about individual ones like mantra or whatever's relevant for you now, but just what can really practically help people to release these contractions? Well, central is definitely meditation. And that's something that's said in many traditions and for a good reason, because it's through meditation that we actually have a chance to, especially in this day and age with all the technology, we have a chance to actually just stop doing all the stuff we're doing and pause and be with who we are and connect with who we are. When we sit still, when we close the eyes and closing the eyes is super important, I feel, because the eyes are probably our main kind of sensory input. We look at everything. 
I think sight is our dominant kind of um, sensory capacity, really. So we close the eyes and we turn our awareness inward. And by doing so, we let the external kind of tensions begin to drop away. And we're not letting them drop away to just, oh, I've got to get away from all this and just, you know, and just not deal with it. It's not that. It's to move inward to become refreshed, to become rejuvenated, to become re-enlivened from within by turning our consciousness into the depths of who we are. Because in those depths is this unlimited potency within each of us. You know, and it's funny because science these days is talking more and more about how human beings have a lot of potential in them that we just don't even know, that we're not we're not tapping into in some way, shape, or form. There's all kinds of courses out there on like improve your memory, you know, maximize your breath rate, maximize your your heart rate, maximize your physical capacity, your stamina for this and that, maximize your intelligence. There's lots of talk about neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, all these amazing things that we humans are capable of and that we aren't really doing for the most part because we are so drawn into our normal day-to-day and it keeps us distracted from all the stuff that's going wrong with ourself. And so when we sit and we turn attention inward, we get to be with ourselves, and we get to start to experience the things within us that not just the things that are kind of nice and and open and clear, but also we start to experience the things that are not so clear and that are kind of contracted and are not very pretty. And by doing that, we begin to relate to ourselves in a little different way. We begin to understand that we are composed of all these different aspects and each one is actually important because each one can help move us toward a better understanding of ourselves and can also, which then can help us move towards more clarity and more freedom in expressing who we are. Because the better we understand, why do I do this? Why do I have this habit in this way? Why do I always say this when somebody says this? Why do I always do this when somebody does this? Why am I always beating myself down? Why am I always you know, tripping myself up in different ways? Why do I always feel like I'm never good enough or I'm not going to succeed? Well, there's, there's a root to all these things. And meditation, I feel, is a practice that gets to that root. A proper meditation practice that can take you in deep will get to that root and will start to work at it and will start to release what's holding you back to some degree. And when that happens, it's like, wow, wow, I didn't even know. I didn't even realize there was this thing stuck in me from so long ago. I'd completely forgotten about it. But now it's being released in my practice. And then we have practices of mantra, various mantra practices. Those assist in the release in that from the external from the place of externality, where we can do what's called japa practice, where we can do repetitive recitation of different mantras. And mantra itself is a vibration. And vibration is what everything is made of. So when we do mantra practices, we are changing, we are affecting the vibration of our own body-mind consciousness by repeating these mantras over and over again, moving our tongue, our lips, making the resonance inside of our skull, our throat, our chest, And this is a really powerful practice. Why is it that a lot of kind of um, indigenous cultures, they have chanting, just even just basic chanting. They don't, it's not even like they call it mantra or anything, but they have these chants that they do and they get more and more kind of um, vigorous and more and more kind of, um, how to say, passionate in a way, you know, and what does that do? A person starts starts through chanting. You can start to release some of the blockages that are there. You start to kind of soften in a way. 
parts of yourself you start to kind of melt into a place inside of you that's that's very soothing and so mantra is another huge part of the practice now, tantra is mantra based tantra is mantra then there are other practices that in the tradition that i've been practicing that we also do different practices to help us kind of focus on certain areas that we would like to work with within ourselves and release things that have been building up for a long time that we're aware of is there, but we just can't seem to kind of get unstuck. So we can use a practice to kind of unstick a place that's really stuck. And it takes time. This is the thing too, that a true authentic practice is not a weekend practice. It's not, it's not going to practice for you know six months or even six years and be done. It's a lifetime practice because it's a process of undoing everything that we've done to ourselves up to the point that we started to practice. As I was saying earlier, and as most everyone's aware of really, is that in our daily life, we tend to go, 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 move, 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 do, do, do. And we don't take the time to really stop and assess where are we going? How are we getting there? How is this all affecting me as I do this? And that's super important. And I think having meditation practice also helps us slow down and be able to observe that more easily. One of the practices I used to do actually when I was, before I even got into meditation, was just to kind of watch what I was, how I was relating to things that were happening that I was, things that I was doing that were problematic. Like if I was doing something that was unskillful, when was I realizing it? And then how was I making kind of reparation for it in some way, shape or form? And the idea being that what we may notice when we start do a little practice like that is we start to feel, wow, I did something like two weeks ago. Now, now I'm actually remembering it. You know, now I'm actually observing it and becoming aware of it. And it wasn't really that skillful. Oof. You know, and how can I now course correct that in some way? And then as we, as we practice with more, we start to become more aware, more conscious of what we're doing, because it really comes down to that becoming more conscious of what we're doing. Then we start to go, oh, a week now I see it. Oh, three days and I see it. Oh, a day and I see it. Oh, an hour and I see it. Oh, oh, 10 minutes ago and now I see it. And then we start to see it as it's happening. And that means that we can then change it. We cannot enact it. This is a process that we all need to go through to some degree that to be able to not enact the things that are tripping us up, that are causing us to contract, that are hurting people around us in various ways on a regular basis. We're all going to make mistakes and we're all going to have challenges in life that are not going to be comfortable. And, but that's good because then we learn more about ourselves and we grow from that. But at the same time, the kind of unnecessary small things that we tend to beat ourselves up over or we tend to pick on others about, you know, the judgments that we have that are just completely ridiculous and not useful at all, or the ways that we kind of judge ourselves even that are not helpful at all to us progressing. These are things that we can change so easily just by being conscious, more conscious of what we're doing. And I think meditation practice helps make us more conscious of, of what we're doing with our body, with our breath, with our mind, with our heart. It just makes us more conscious. We're more present with who we are. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one thing as you were talking that really struck me, it's for all of the notable and significant differences between different schools of Indian thought. And in my mind, I'm thinking of Shaiva Tantra, which I've studied in, in Buddhism being the other one. And of course, there are tantric forms of Buddhism, but you know, I've studied a lot in a non-tantric form with Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock, who are 
you know, in a Theravada tradition. But in so many ways, just the basic practice of of mindfulness, for example, even though it's some of the meditation practices are, are different than, say, a mantra-based meditation practice, they're ultimately really all getting at the same goals, you know, and as I often like to frame it for people who want to hear it in just totally secular, you know, maybe familiar Western psychological language, meditation really is about cultivating emotional intelligence. What you just spoke about is really about developing self-awareness, right? <laughs> it's developing, first of all, on a really basic level of attention, and then we begin to become more self-aware to observe our passing states and moods. We begin to notice what really hooks us, what triggers us, what we're averse to, what we're attached to. And then from there, from that platform of attention and self-awareness, we can begin to manage our emotions more effectively. But I'm just struck listening to you talk. Plenty of people might be thinking, no, meditation's the same. So perhaps I'm certainly, I'm really so impressed by the, the similarities because I've gone deep into different traditions and I'm aware of the fact that there are some really significant differences, but the ultimate goal is truly the same in so many of these different contemplative practices. And that is why, as we were talking about earlier, really, when we were talking about the Gita, that's why you have to find the path that is perfect for you, the path that speaks to you, the path that you feel you can take up and really devote yourself to for some, some period of time. Because this is one of the problematic things sometimes is that a person will do something for a year and if it doesn't yield a huge amount of things for them, then they go, oh, let me go to something else. And you're just digging holes in the ground. You're not getting any deeper. You know, you're digging very shallow holes all over the place and you're not going deep. And if you're not going to go deep into something, then you're never going to touch the essence of what that thing can offer you. You know, and that's true in everything. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting because as, as human beings, we understand things like if you wanted to be able to play Rachmaninoff, you've got to study for a long period of time. You've got to practice every day. You've got to be really devoted to your playing and your and your instrument. If you wanted to be an amazing painter, you have to be painting all the time. If you want to be an excellent person in sports, you've got to be practicing all the time. All these things people recognize and they and they acknowledge that and they go, yes, you know, that person is so amazing. They devoted all their life to becoming this world-class swimmer. They devoted their life to becoming this world-class whatever. But when it comes to refining our consciousness and to becoming more balanced as a human being from inside out, not just some kind of surface level, I'm, I'm making it look like everything's in control, but inside the whole house is on fire and I'm burning down. It's like sometimes... There's just this whole misunderstanding of like, well, you know, I should be able to do that with a couple like easy courses, right? Don't we have the kind of like self-help easy course thing that I can take that's, you know, it's like 10 tricks to make yourself a more cohesive human being. I mean, it, it's not that simple. It's not. It requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of time. It requires a lifetime. And that is sometimes very, you know, people don't want to hear that. It requires a night, lifetime. right? And then the funny thing is, it requires a lifetime. Well, I don't have a lifetime, but you do have a lifetime, actually. And that's the thing. You do have a lifetime. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? You know, it's a very simple question. At the same time, it's a very profound question for us to always ask ourselves over and over again, no matter where we are in our kind of practices or whatever. What am, what am I doing with this life? How am I living it? One thing I like to always say is, because I've come to appreciate it, that it's very true about all of us, including myself. And when I'm trying to sort of, you know, reflect on my own behavior and, and maybe the 
assess to what extent I'm actually acting out my values in the world, you know, I always come back to this sort of saying, your actions reflect your priorities. And I just think that's, that's very true. You know, you want to understand someone, you know, don't listen to what they say, look at what they do. That's sort of another slogan that gets at the same idea, but it's very true. And people say they care about it. We can pick all these other things too. It's meditation, which we can also think of as a form, once again, more Western secular, but mental health. You hear people say this about a lot of different things relating to health, right? Whether it's nutrition or exercise, it's people talk about how important it is to them. But then the reality is, what do you really choose to spend your time doing? You know, for things that are really important to you, and I know we're all busy, but I think we make time for the things that are really important to us. And for a lot of people, you know, they're, especially we're both from the US, you know, their career and the way that is an existential thing for some people is something they feel they have to get back to. I don't have enough time. I have to get back to work. And let's totally acknowledge that you know, there are very serious financial realities there. So I don't mean to make light of that. But once again, you read stories of all the time of people who are able to sort of get out of the normal matrix of the nine to five, you know, and find a more balanced life. But that's what it really comes back to, I think, is your actions reflect your priorities. But yeah, there seems to be a lot of, you know, I'd love to learn this, but then I've got to get back to work. Right, or I've got to get back to doing this or that, or I've got to, you know, it's the habitual patterns again. And it's our it's our self-image, right? We have these very strong images of ourself and how we're supposed to live our life and what that's supposed to look like and how that's shaped by our culture. Yes. That's definitely one of the huge barriers is the kind of cultural and social context in which we are positioned at any given moment, and then how we're expected to act in accordance with those kind of norms, so to speak. And there's stuff that makes sense. You know, there's stuff like you don't you don't walk out into traffic, you don't run red lights, push aside people to get in the front of the line, this kind of stuff. I mean, there's stuff that makes sense. But at the same time, it's like I, I look at my son, he'll be seven months old and say he's a little guy. And he's all of this is new to him. And he's just expressing himself in every moment the way he needs to express himself. And it's pretty amazing because he's not tied into any kind of societal norms, so to speak, or any kind of cultural norms, really. And he's just this beautiful, spontaneous expression of life that responds to what other people do around him, but then also kind of has his own little nature that comes up and what he wants to express in that moment. And it's this freedom there. That and this is said in many traditions, my many teachers. Oh, you know, you're you and your kid, you know, your child. You're very free, and then as you grow into an adult, you get contracted by the different kind of demands that family and peers and society and cultures place on you, and say that you have to conform to. And so it's as if we begin as this kind of organic, able to kind of adapt to whatever and whenever, and then we wind up being kind of boxed in slowly over time and told that we have to take a certain form and stick with that form and stop changing around like we've been doing. And I think one of the reasons that it's important for people to do the things that they really find brings them joy in their life is because if you just stay in that one kind of 
box all the time, that one kind of um, petrified form in a way all the time, you limit yourself so much and you get to the end of your life and you look back and you say, what the heck did I do? Why did I, why did I not do these things? And why did I do these things? They made no sense. Yeah, so I, I, love, um, I love this book, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful, simple, ridiculously wise book. And the whole idea is that we often, you know, that he speaks about even in the beginning of the book, you know, we often get close to expressing our kind of full capacity. And then we just shut it down because somebody around us says, hey, 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 don't be doing that. You know, that's not cool. That's a little bit different than what everybody else is doing. Or that's not really how we do things here. So you need to kind of, you know, put a little stop on that. And then people go, okay. You know, I guess I should. I guess I should listen to what everybody or most everybody around me is saying and kind of conform with that because you know I don't want to upset people because then I'll look weird or I'll I'll be um, considered not not a person that you want to associate with and then you know lose out on all my societal benefits in that way. I want to sort of bookmark something and ask you about it because what you said a minute or two ago sort of reminded me about a theme that comes up a lot, I feel, with different guests that I talk to. It's it's how we get really stuck in a particular, in our habitual ways of doing things. Some of these might not even be bad, but you know, inertia is a very powerful force. And we can get stuck in kind of good enough, you know, <laughs> complacency. There's a fine line between contentment and complacency and the way the mind can rationalize certain things. And I think a lot about the balance between Shiva and Shakti. You know, this is, it's the archetypal balance between order and chaos. Jordan Peterson's talked a lot about it with different myths and in a Christian context. But as I heard him talk, I really realized it's, it's totally the classic tantric view. And it's also the Taoist one of the yin and yang, right? There's, there's order and stability and too much chaos isn't a good thing, right? We, we need to be able to make sense of our, our world and ourselves and to feel secure, but too much order can be a problem as well. It can hold us back from personal growth. And we need that kind of dynamic element, that creative destruction, that chaos, the Shakti to come in and shake things up. And I think psychedelics can be a powerful tool for that when they are balanced with proper ordering Shaivite forces like intention going into it, like integration coming out of it. The other really powerful kind of paradigm shattering tool that I like to talk about, and I think it's one of the greatest tools I've ever encountered is travel. And in particular, when you live in another country, I think that is the, by far for me, the most powerful sort of cultural and personal deprogramming that I've ever undergone is living abroad, especially living in Asia. I've lived in Europe before, but Asia is just so different than Western civilization that that for me is just a constant process of kind of breaking me down and building me up and breaking me down and building me up. And I'm still there even eight years in. And I, I know that you're an expat in Japan and have been for some time. So I'm curious what that experience has been like for you 
in terms of upending your paradigm, in terms of constructing a new worldview and how you've been able to reconcile what you've learned in Japan with your upbringing in the West? Wow. I mean, Japan is a very different culture from Western culture, as we all know. And it's a beautiful culture. It has a lot of really exquisite things that it expresses through its arts and through its crafts and through its different ways of doing things. And that's that's kind of actually a foundational thing about Japan is they have all these ways of doing things. And, you know, a lot of the forms, for example, you have chado, which is the tea ceremony, and then you have shodo, which is the art of calligraphy, and you have kudo, which is the art of shooting a bow. And you have a lot of other dos besides that, you know, kendo, the art of the sword, and aikido, a very famous one, right? And the thing is, having all these ways means that within each way, there's supposed to be, at least this is what is often said, a particular way, a particular sequence in which something is to be done. And that sequence is to be repeated every time that thing is done. It's never to be changed. It's never to be altered. It's never to be even organically allowed to morph into something else. And while there's a beauty in seeking to create some kind of perfect sequence, so to speak, it's very dogmatic in that way, I think. And it kind of forces something to be a shape it's not meant to be at times. And that's very much, I mean, that happens in this culture to people. You see people trying to force themselves into a place when, it happens in a lot of cultures though, of course, also people, we were talking about it, right? People try to force themselves into being something they're not because the cultural and societal norms are saying that that's what they need to be. And here in Japan, it's it's definitely a major thing that people here will just kind of box themselves in because that's the box that they were told they need to be in. It's not everyone, of course. There are people here who are, you know, who are living their freedom, who are living their kind of muse and living their creative expression in a full way. It's beautiful to behold. But a lot of the society has that kind of tendency towards, I've got a kind of box that I need to fit in. I've got a form that I'm supposed to be, and I have to maintain that form. And I cannot break it. For me, living here, it's been interesting to watch my own kind of uh, play with that as I try to adapt to that in some way, shape, or form. So I can actually like not upset people as much in some way sometimes, not be as like, not cause waves that would upset people because I realize I'm in another culture. It's not, it's not my culture. It's not, it's not the country I was born in. So I can't expect to be living that all the time. But at the same time, I have to express who I am. So this has created definitely some interesting situations here and some interesting revelations for myself about myself, actually. So even though I'm talking now and it sounds maybe like, like wow, living in Japan, maybe it's not been that much fun for him, it actually has been fun for me. And it's been an amazing learning process about myself to be here, to see my own kind of contractions and where am I really holding on to things and where am I really holding on to my identity to some degree, like things in my identity that aren't really that important, but I'm trying to cling to them and I'm not trying, I won't let them go. And then how can I relinquish that? How can I just easefully let it go? And when I let it go, can I let it go with a sense of um, thank you, with a sense of gratitude? Because whatever it was served me up until that point, and then, okay, I need to let you go now. You've got to go. And it's a very interesting process, as I'm sure you're experiencing too, where you are. You know, just that kind of, it's like being churned and churned and churned. And this is, 
And that churning is something that I'm, I'm very familiar with already from the tradition that I practice and teach. And because in the Shaiva Tantra, we have this idea of the churning of our consciousness. When we do our practice. I'm thinking of the milky ocean as soon yeah, as you said yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, of course. You're thinking of the myth, right? Of the of the ocean of milk, right? Yeah, it's a beautiful myth. And, you know, for just to give a quick, you know, nutshell version of that for people listening, what happens is you have the, the devas and the asuras, and the devas are the gods, and the asuras are the anti-gods, actually, is what they are. They're anti-gods. They aren't necessarily demons. They're anti-gods. And the two are always fighting. And the thing is that the demons have a little extra help on their side because they have a, a kind of medic, so to speak, who can actually bring them back from, from the dead, can resurrect them. But the devas do not have that. And they hear that, oh, wait, there's this elixir called Soma that, I can, that, we can, that if we can get, it grants us immortality. And then we'll be good to go. We won't be heavy losses after these battles with the asuras all the time. But they also find out, well, we need to actually get the asuras to help us get it. We can't get it by ourselves. We need some help. So it's really interesting because the idea of like the the devas supposedly being the ones in the light and the asuras, the ones in the shadow, you know, having to use your shadow side to bring forth something extraordinary within you. I think it's a great metaphor in a way because that's really the practice of um, the pra- that's essential kind of focus of the practices that that we do, how we have to churn and churn and churn our own consciousness. We churn every part of it to kind of bring forward the best of what is there. But we have to go through the stuff that's not so good to, at the same time. So anyway, these these asuras and devas they get together, and you know the the myth has all these great symbols. Of course, you know they use Mount. Meru, or it's called Mount Mandara sometimes, and it's, they turn it upside down as the churning stick, and then they use Vasuki, a serpent who kind of, he can circle the world. They use him as the churning cord, and they're churning away and churning away, and they have these phases where they, the first phase, they're churning and churning and churning and churning. They're doing a lot of hard work, they feel, but nothing's happening, and suddenly Vasuki vomits all over the asuras, and the asuras are like, this is just ridiculous. Nothing's happening, and we're covered in snake vomit, and this is just ridiculous, this whole thing. But then they're encouraged to keep going, and they're encouraged by Vishnu, actually, who is um, he's the god of maintenance. We were talking earlier about Shivanataraja, and like maintaining something is, is part of those five acts, part of the contraction and expansion. There's a maintenance part. And so he's there to like refresh them and say, okay, let's maintain, let's keep going. And then they keep going. And suddenly what happens is stuff starts to come out. Not the Soma, but all kinds of extraordinary things. The sun, the moon, the Kalstub gem, this very valuable gem, Airavata, the nine-trunked albino elephant, you know, just all these extraordinarily wild, outrageous things. And then what happens is they're all very excited. They're like, okay, great. Soma's got to be coming soon. But what instead starts to appear on the surface of the ocean is this kind of dark bluish black toxicity in a kind of viscous liquid form. And they're just like, "Uh oh, what is this? And then they have to call, they have to, they're like, what do we do? And Vishnu says, we need to get Shiva. Obviously we need to get him. So they have to call him in. He has to come and he, he sits at the edge of the ocean and all it's like a hush it's like a, like not a not a sound all the officers all the davis their eyes are all on shiva and he just kneels down at the shore and sticks his arm into this 
viscous, dark, blue, black poison, really. That's what it is. It's called the hala hala poison or the kalakuta poison. And he sticks his arm in there and the, the poison itself moves up his arm. And as it moves up his arm, he opens his mouth of all things and it crawls into his mouth. All of it, it just pours and pours and pours and pours into his mouth. And he holds it in his throat. He holds it there. And that's why his throat is blue. It turns blue because he transforms the poison into nectar in his throat. And in this form of Shiva, this form of Shiva is known as the mantra murti. So murti means a form, an embodiment. So it's the embodiment of the mantra. So this is a core teaching, as you know, in our tradition, because the mantra is what transforms the poison into nectar, into something sweet. By meditating on the mantra, by using the various japa mantras and, and the chanting mantras, we begin to transform the vibration within ourselves from a toxic vibration into one that's more clear and more filled with wisdom, more filled with knowledge, deep knowledge, more filled with goodness, really. That's what it is. You could say goodness. The quality of, of compassion and kindness and you know these things that are spoken about in the Buddhist tradition and in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. We have this Maitri and we have this, and we have Karuna and we have Maitri Karuna and then we have Mudita, of course. <laughs> we have these beautiful concepts and practices in the Buddhist tradition and in and even in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, he mentions them. You know, and so the churning. And so being here for me is a lot of, has been a bit of churning. And the churning has been good because it churns up the things that I need to take a look at. And as I look at those things, I have the option to begin to release them. And there are times when I don't want to let it go. I mean, no, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a very familiar part of me. I don't really want to let it go. But eventually, it's just like, okay, it's got to go. It's got to go. And what's beautiful, what's really beautiful about this practice this practice of meditation that I'm doing, I'm sure there are other practices and traditions out there that maybe have this kind of effect as well, is that that letting go of those things that are hindering my movement forward, it becomes a natural letting go. It's not I have to force it to go. It's not, okay, I need to get this go and push it out of the way. Let me get it over here, put it in a corner and not look at it. You know, and it, no, it just goes. One day it's, it's not there anymore. And this is the possibility for all of us. All of us can do this. All of us can move into the space where we can naturally just begin to let go of things. But we need sequences of practice to help us get there. Most of us do. There are some people who don't. There are some people, bless them. They're just amazing beings filled with light and filled with love and filled with integrity and filled with honor. And they just naturally move in this world in a very skillful and effective and efficient way. And they're amazing, amazing beings. Those are the outliers, for sure. <laughs> right. Those are the rare ones. They're the rare ones. And they're great because they inspire us. They, they show us what's possible in a human being. I want to ask you about something because you mentioned it earlier and you're kind of alluding to it now, which is this is the problem of, and I think it's sort of a reflection of, you know, kind of the consumerist capitalist culture. We have so many options, you know, we're sort of used to taking a little bit of this over there and a bit of that over there. And we really see that in the new age movement in which things are sort of lacking in any kind of lineage. And I think there's an importance in, 
I'm trying to figure out a balance, frankly, and I'd love to, to get your take on this because on the one hand, I understand the importance of lineage. Just practically speaking, if you're always moving around and you don't stick with the technique, you're not going to really get what that technique in the whole school in which it was embedded, embedded had to teach you. On the other hand, I think it it's also healthy to acknowledge the globalized nature of today and if, for example, Tantra and Taoism or Qigong, I, I said, this would be perfect for you because I know you practice Qigong as well, right? So you're into yoga and the Indian path, but you also appreciate the wisdom of the Chinese tradition. How you can kind of integrate those two. And I'm, I'm thinking of, I asked the same question to Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor and, and Richard and Mary are very, they were very into Iyengar for a while. And then, you know, eventually they moved on. And they practiced that for a number of years, but then they went on to Ashtanga. But, you know, and they also love Hinduism, but they also very much are open about the fact that they're drawn to the path of the Buddha. And they're just kind of open about this, that they're influenced by both Hinduism and Buddhism, and they don't want to jump in, a, in a one particular label. And that really resonates with me because I l absolutely love Shaiva Tantra and it really resonates with me on so many levels and in some ways. I'm drawn to certain things like the myth that I don't feel as much from Buddhism, but Buddhism is so much a part of my path as well. And I'm wondering if if you can talk about that. What's the the balance between how do you know when you're practicing a lineage long enough and then how do you eventually know when to go on to practice a new lineage? And then ultimately, how can you integrate those two? Wow, that's a great question. Well, in my own case, um, since you brought up Taoism, and I actually started with Taoism before I got into any type of yoga philosophy. I was um, oh, because of martial I, arts, of course. Yeah, well, not even because the because of martial arts. I guess you could say, of course, but I think also because I was kind of as a teenager and in my early twenties, I was fishing around in different books, reading different stuff like Alan Watts Zen, you know, his take on Zen, and then I was reading different other kind of texts on different things, but Taoism really spoke to me. I was look I didn't understand it, of course, at all. I was like reading, I was like, wow, this is really amazing. I don't really understand much at all. But the idea of from one comes from nothing comes one, from one comes two, you know, and this the idea that we are also all part of nature and that that natural expression of who we are is present within us and we need to find it in some way, shape, or form. And then actually this is what helped get me into Tantra, because Tantra was the thing I found that most closely resembled Taoism for me. And then I had teachers of Tantra who were able to explain things to me, and I never had a teacher of Taoism who could really explain anything to me, so I went on that path. And I've immersed myself in that for a very long time, and I, I love it. It's, it's definitely like the heart of who I am, is this Nandoshaiva Tantric path that I've been on. But I'm making this kind of orbit coming back around, as you alluded to, to Taoism and to the martial arts practice from yoga, actually, where I'm stepping away from the Hatha yoga practice and stepping into, um, definitely mo most of my practice these days is Qigong, is Qigong oriented practices. And I've been practicing this for not that long, really, just like almost nine or 10 months now. But I find it interesting. Really what caused that shift for you, Mark? Well, I think... And I still teach yoga and I still use these principles to some degree that I've learned in my different yoga practices. But 
I think what brought that shift was a very real and practical thing, which is I was, when I started practicing the Qigong last year, this particular form, after like, just like a month or two, I was feeling very different in my body and feeling more steady and feeling certain kind of physical things. Like, um, for example, I used to get very cold in my hands and my feet. My feet and circulation thing doesn't get there that well, maybe because I'm tall, who knows. But my hands and feet normally get very cold. But since I've been practicing Qigong, I haven't had cold hands and feet at all, even during the winter of Kyoto here that we get. And then I would have people remark on certain things. You know, wow, like the way you're standing or the way your shoulder's sitting or, you know, it's just everything seems more settled, more even, more just, just I was, and I was feeling all this in my body. I can, the Qigong also tends to access the energetic body, I feel, a little more powerfully and a little more cohesively than the Hatha Yoga practice, my feeling. And the other thing is that one of the reasons I was led to the Qigong, really, it's like this really interesting step-by-step is I was practicing Hatha Yoga for, I've been practicing Hatha Yoga for about two decades, you know? And I did the style of Anasara as we spoke of. And then after Anasara in 2012, I let go of Anasara completely. I said, I'm just going to start practicing and teaching Hatha Yoga in the way of my most favorite philosophy teacher, which is, or who is Bruce Lee. And you know, he, he was actually my first philosophy teacher in a way because it was one of his books I read when I was in my teens, my 20s, and I loved it. It was just amazing. All about his philosophy. It wasn't about his Jeet Kune Do. It wasn't about like the martial arts. It was about his philosophy. And he, one of his, one of my favorite things that he says is having no ways the way, no limitations, limitation, which is one of his kind of catchphrases. And the other thing he says is no style. My style is no style. So from 2012, I was like, my style is no style. That's it. And it wasn't just a catchphrase for me. It was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to teach what needs to be taught to whoever is in front of me without any kind of preconception of what I'm going to give them. I'm just going to teach them what needs to be taught in that moment and let that speak and let, let it speak to that. And so as I was doing that and practicing just Hatha yoga in my own kind of way and investigating it more and more in that way, I then stumbled onto another style of yoga, so to speak. And in that style of yoga, I found, wow, there's like a lot of different movements that I don't see in Hatha yoga usually. And there's a lot of different ways of moving the body they're doing. And actually, this is kind of martial arts oriented a little bit. That's kind of interesting. And I was thinking, well, I'm getting back drawn into the martial arts circle. And then I find out I find out that this yoga is really influenced by Qigong. <laughs> it's got a lot of like, it's really influenced by Qigong. And when I started my Qigong practice- Was this shadow yoga by chance that you were yeah, practicing? Yeah, shadow yoga. Yeah, Dude, shadow it's yoga. so funny because you know I've told you about Simon Borg-Olivier yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. Who's really integrated Qigong with yoga. Well, Simon's first teacher- was Shandor, who's the guy who started Shadow Yoga. Right, right. Yeah, Shandor, I met Shandor. I actually took, that's how I started the Shadow Yoga practice was with him and his and his um, senior teacher and his girlfriend, Emma, Emma Balanos. I started with them in Tokyo. They just happened to come to Tokyo. And what happened was I heard about them through a friend of mine, a fellow, fellow yoga teacher who just one day through um, Facebook or something was telling me, oh my gosh, I was just practicing the Shadow Yoga. And it was really like, on a pranic level, it was so intense. And I was thinking, wow, really? Because I would love to experience that then because, you know, I I like the 
prana is a huge part of the practice for me. The pranayama and the, the breathing and like getting the prana to move in the body. It's always something that I've been very focused on. And so I was very intrigued to, to take up this practice and try it out. So I just fortunately, he wound up coming to Tokyo three months after this friend of mine told me that. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll go up there for a weekend with him and see how it is. I'll, be, I'll go to the source, you know. I won't, won't just go to a teacher of his his tradition or his um, style, so to speak, but I'll go to the source. And um, he's, he's a really intelligent guy. He really knows a lot. And he's a great teacher, I thought, and very interesting character as well. And so I was then pursuing practice with one of his teachers down in Kobe, very skillful teacher, very in-depth teacher of shadow yoga, this woman, Akiko Oeda. She's excellent. And so I was studying with her for about a year. And then I started, and then what happened was, I went to Bali last year in June with my wife. It was the baby moon type thing she wanted to do before our little one was born. And so we went there and after going to Bali for about 10 days, came back. And the very day I got back, I had this email from this guy in Ubud in Bali, this guy Kamal. And he said, hey, I'm coming to Japan and I'm I teach a bunch of different things and I was wondering if I could present your studio because it looks, you know, it looks like a really great place to present, et cetera, et cetera. And we get this all the time, you know, being a yoga studio, you get people contacting you, of course, you know, they want to come and do something there. And so, um, and then I asked him what he does and he, he mentioned Qigong and I thought that could be something that people here could, could get into, I think. And so, and I also thought I'm kind of intrigued to like, you know, <laughs> to like to experience it too. So let's bring him in. So, Brought him in and he taught great workshop and I enjoyed it. And I had a great experience of the chi, you know, the flow of the energy through the body with um, just that one workshop. And I thought, this is really great stuff. This is powerful. And so I started studying from the system that he was stu- had studied and the teacher he had learned from. I started studying online through that system. And then I went to Thailand, as you know, because I met you and in Thailand, we had a nice uh, lunch. It was great. Oh, was this guy a White Tiger Qigong teacher? Yeah, yeah. This is White Tiger Qigong, yeah. Which, guy, what was his name? Do you know? Kamal the te- Abayomi. Interesting, Kamal. Where was he from? He's stationed in Bali for like okay. three years. But then he's he's from America, I think. And he's um he travels around a little bit too. Ah, I forgot that was your connection. Yeah, and so... Yeah, really sweet guy. That's and, right. Uh, for our listeners, so basically this guy's system that he introduced Mark to, White Tiger Qigong, I had done a teacher training in this a year ago. And Mark and I connected around this even after Mark had been my teacher for the online course with Paul Muller Ortega and Nandul Shaiva Tantra. So that was kind of a funny coincidence we had. I know. It's it's so, you know, Adrian, it is so funny, you know, and this is and this is something else I have to say, is that when you start practicing and you start really investigating your own consciousness and you start investigating the world around you in a really deep and conscious manner, things like this just happen all the time. <laughs> it's really amazing. I run into so many people who point me in another direction, who guide me to certain things, who like have experiences that are really influential for me to hear and 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 it's just amazing so yeah i mean it, that was so cool when i found out from you that oh you're well when you were in thailand and oh well maybe i could come and do something there on my way in i'm gonna take this course and you're like oh what course and i thought wait tiger chica you're like oh yeah i took it last year <laughs> <laughs> so i had a feeling you were gonna say white tiger chigong it's definitely a great system. I'd recommend it to anyone who's interested in it. In fact, I'm hoping to have Tivia 
Fung, the, the founder of the pod, founder of that style of Qigong on the podcast soon. He's a very knowledgeable guy. Yeah, it was a, it was a great course. Did three weeks in Thailand, and it was great. And you know, came back from that um, after February. All February, I was in Thailand, Chiang Mai. In, um, One thing that I find Qigong, and this is sort of what Simon Borg-Olivier, this is who I was referencing earlier for people who aren't familiar when I reference Simon to Mark, but Simon Borg-Olivier is this fantastic yoga teacher who studied a lot of yoga with Iyengar and Patabi Joyce, and he really integrated yoga with Western principles of physiotherapy and then also with, with Qigong as well. And he's gravitated a lot more as the years have gone on, even after he developed his original system of yoga synergy, to a lot more of a Qigong-influenced practice. And the way it looks like now is basically you're pretty much not confined to a mat. You're not doing any kind of poses where you're, you're on the floor, where you're doing kind of chaturanga or up dogs or down dogs. And his point with that, and he had us, he led us through different practices and he said, try it out for yourself. He's like, look, they're both great for different reasons, but he makes a couple of arguments. One, he believes that yoga, especially as the way it's taught in most yoga studios, leads to a lot of injuries over time. And that there's something about the practice of yoga as he teaches at or Qigong, where you're not having external forces such as gravity bring you into poses that can that avoids a lot of injury when you're not doing that, when you're u- not using gravity to bring you into poses. And even things like down dog can can cause a lot of or up dog can cause a lot of problems with your shoulders and wrists. But but anyways, the other big thing he makes a point of, and, and this is what really persuaded me, is that if you're doing this as a practice, and of course you've got to be just very intentional about why you're working with it. But if you're doing it as a contemplative practice where your goal is a couple of things, one, to bring yourself into a parasympathetic state, which is the ideal state where you're going to drop deeper into a state of meditation, then having more of a Qigong practice, which is marked by a lot less tension, less stress, less overbreathing is preferable to, in particular, an intense vinyasa power-based yoga practice because it brings you into that sympathetic state. And also, in terms of working with the subtle body and chi and energy, you really feel the connection much, much more deeply when you're doing qigong. And a good example of this is, so we had us do kind of the standard qigong practice at the beginning of class where you're feeling that connection, right, between the fingertips and feeling that at the end of a practice that was qigong based where we're not going on the floor, we're not doing the up dogs, down dogs versus a more traditional vinyasa yoga practice. And what's really interesting and Undoubtedly, you know, people are going to have to try this for themselves to understand it, not to mention even see it in video. It's hard to describe over just audio. But when you begin to do those exercises on the floor, the chaturangas, the up dogs, the down dogs, and you go back to feeling that connection at the end of the hands, you really realize you lose it. You lose that connection. 
you know, and why is that? And there are really practical reasons. We can talk about what chi or what prana is, right? In Western scientific terms, well, we could think about blood or we could think about communication between cells. We could think about neurotransmitters, right? But they're all forms of energy. And what you're doing when you either close a fist or what you put your hands against the ground and you're, you're doing is you're pushing blood away from the hands and you totally lose that connection. And so I've just found for working with the subtle body and for going deeper into a, a more contemplative state that, that Qigong is really preferable if that's your goal, you know, and I just had a guest on yesterday where we talked about this, you know, what's the purpose of, of yoga. If you're looking for a sweat, then you're not going to want that kind of practice. But he sort of raised some doubts about you shouldn't go to yoga if you're looking for a sweat, that there are better ways to get your exercise as well. I'm curious what your thoughts about that are, whether it's the subtle body or whether just sort of looking how you relate to your yoga practice. Do you look at it as sort of a form of physical exercise or do you do other things for more of a physical workout and do you relate more to your yoga and your qigong for contemplative reasons? Well, with hatha yoga, definitely when I first began it, of course, it was a physical exercise. As I said, it was to stretch so that I could you know, physically um, do the martial arts with a little more ease that I was looking to practice at the time. And after that, as I started practicing, 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 one of the things for me that completely lit me up right at the beginning of my yoga practice was this idea about the chakras and the subtle body and the nadis and all these kind of all this kind of amazing energy moving within the body in a kind of through the invisible flow of the body, you know, the invisible pathways. That was very intriguing for me from the very get-go. So I so most of my practice, my home practice, so to speak, I would be investigating that stuff all the time. Like no matter what my teachers were teaching me, which was all great stuff and mostly about alignment and then some how to do some different more advanced poses and how to um, you know safely do certain things, back bending, forward bending deeply, twisting, these kind of stuff. So I was taking all that great anatomical information they were giving me. And then I was a, when I was practicing, what I was looking for was what can I feel beyond that? How can I go into my awareness of my body and actually start to feel the flow of energy in there. So that's where my investigations were kind of pegged from almost the start of my practice. Probably after the first two or three years, that's where I wound up kind of turning my focus. And I have to say that the thing with the Qigong is that it is designed to start there also. That's where it's designed to start at. Is Yes, you're doing physical practice, but it's designed to move your awareness right to that spot and start to start to feel it from the very get-go. You know, you, know, you take your first Qigong class and you, know, you do the bouncing, you do other things, and then you stop and then you feel. You feel what's different in your arms and your hands even. Just, you know, what's the flow there like now? Can you feel something? Can you feel something there besides just your normal physical kind of sensations that are there? And nine out of 10 times, people can. You know, they can go, wow, there's something else there that's been kind of loosened up, been kind of allowed to organically move. Why? Because I've moved in ways that are not rigid. You know, we were talking before about rigidity of uh, culture, of uh, emotional body and of our mental body and how that creates these contractions within us. Well, then when we're exercising, so to speak, or when we're trying to awaken the physical and the body on a physiological level as well, then we should be doing things that are also not necessarily rigid. And so the Qigong practice at the very outset of it, it's not rigidly defined. It's kind of you move in a certain way 
to just kind of warm the body. Not in a certain way, I'm sorry. You move in kind of a random way to start to move up the physical body, you know, just shaking it out, so to speak. And that starts to just drop some of the rigidity that's naturally there in most people's bodies because of all the stresses we have on on from work and from our physical things that we do, whether it's sitting all day or driving a car for two hours one way, each direction to go to work or whatever it is, or sitting on a train or standing on a train for hours. You know, it's we are beings that are meant to be fluid. We are meant to be expansive. We are meant to be expressive. And we are meant to be connected to one another and to everything around us in a very deep and intrinsic way. That's within every one of us. But our lives are often spent moving in the opposite direction. You know, that's how we're taught in school to, you know, obey the rules and not do this and not do that and sit still and be quiet and learn things this way. No, that's not the way you learn it. You learn it this way. Why? Well, because I said so, which is one of the worst things I've ever heard. Any, it's the worst thing any, any teacher can ever say is because I said so, any adult. And that's where it starts. And then we start, and then we get out in society and society tells the same things. You know, in this kind of situation, you need to be like this and you need to be like that. Don't be fluid. Don't be organic. Be a form of some sort. Become a cohesive form that does not have any kind of movement, any kind of flow to it. It gets it's very problematic. And maybe because I see that more here in Japan, it's very present here to please don't step outside the box in many ways. And again, there are people here who do, and they do it with glee, and they express themselves in very beautiful ways. And I'm so thankful that I've met some of those people here. But also, you know, for me, the the qigong also getting back to your original question as I kind of woo orbit away, the qigong for me it has this healing aspect to it. I believe very deeply within it, it has a healing aspect that actually seems to match up with the healing aspect of my meditation practice. That I've been doing my non-doshaiva tantra practice. I've been doing for ten years. The qigong practice seems to actually go with that in a very cohesive way. Interestingly enough, so well, why don't we sort of pivot to maybe you know a closing topic, you know, and then I'll give you a chance to share where folks can find you. But we've been talking about earlier in the conversation as well, but it's been kind of a common theme of you know this dance between creation and destruction you know, between order and chaos, between Shiva and Shakti, and, and what were some of the different methods for that? We talked about various forms of yoga, including meditation and mantra. And I know also in the tantric worldview, one very important structure and process for that creation and destruction is initiation. And if you don't mind talking a little bit about the importance of initiation, I thought that might be a, a wonderful closing topic because I know you also then initiate people yourself and then perhaps you can you can share some of your upcoming offerings after you've you've given folks a little bit of an explanation about why initiation is so important in the tantric worldview. That's great. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Adrian, for giving me this opportunity to, to speak about that. So initiation. There's this word in Sanskrit, diksha, diksha. And it comes from two roots, da and ksh. And da means to give or to bestow. And ksh means to remove or to destroy. And so the idea in initiation, in this idea of diksha, which means initiation, it's the process of initiation. The idea is that something is given, something is taken away or removed. Something is bestowed and something is destroyed. What is given? What is given is the mantra in my tradition, you know, you're given this beautiful gift of the mantra 
that you then have for your own practice. It's your own personal mantra that's given to you. And what that mantra does is it begins to remove our ignorance. It begins to remove the blockages that keep us caught in our own small things, that keep us caught in those habits and those patterns that are causing us to have problems in our life in different ways. And this process, when I first heard about this process, it was when I got initiated by Paul in 2007. And it was actually the first thing he spoke about before our initiation, before we received initiation. And maybe it was because it was the first thing he spoke about, but it's something that's always stuck with me, not just in relation to initiation, but in relation to everything in life. Because the idea is that for a new space, for something new to arise, there has to be space for it to arise. And that means that something has to be removed for something to arise. And this is a process I see in my life over and over again. And we were talking about the churning. And the churning is a process that removes the stuff that's in the way. It's like a refinement process. Like when you're refining rocks, right? And trying to get the precious minerals out of them. You, you heat them and you remove all the kind of detritus around the metals and then the metals are revealed. And the churning process is the same way. You're removing the things that are hindering the kind of gold of who you are, the kind of preciousness of who you are to arise and to express itself. And this process in my life, I see over and over again, there's something that needs to be removed so that something new can rise in its place. That is a scary thing for most of us because most of us want to have everything that we put in order in our life to stay in that order. You know, you've been speaking about order and chaos, you know, and the We've also been speaking about this idea of um, rigidity and organic kind of um, fluidity. And most people do not want organic fluidity in their life. They want their life to be a solid kind of platform upon which they can rest themselves and stand and not have it shake and move all over the place. I live in a country where things shake and move all over the place often. And the thing is that in our lives, our practices should give us this ability to stand firm even if everything around us is shaking, even if everything around us is moving and falling apart, because we're able to adapt to that movement, we're able to go with the flow, we're able to be fluid with that. And this way, we don't get kind of knocked down all the time by the little challenges that life throws us. This idea definitely of things that need to be removed to bring new things into being, and this idea of fluidity and adaptability in the face of different challenges, for me, have been very central in being able to navigate my life for the past decade, especially being in a different culture, especially coming up against things I didn't understand, I didn't know, and having to work with them in that way, having to work with these new kind of ways of doing things, not familiar to me, and being open to them without just shutting everything down in the process. Well said. Well, thank you, Mark, for sharing that. And perhaps on that closing note, I'd love for you before you part just to share a little bit about where folks can find you and find more about your offerings, including I know that you offer introductions to Nila Kanta Meditation. So if you want to give our listeners that information, I'm sure that many of them would be interested in following up with you. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you, Adrian. So you can find me at... MarkSchwemmerYoga.com. 
pretty simple. Just my name, yoga.com. You can email me at markshavema at gmail.com. And I will be actually presenting an initiation weekend in Kyoto, Japan, the weekend of May 3rd to 6th. It's a four-day, actually. I'm going to have four days. And then I'm also going to be teaching a course, the course that, Adrian, that you um, attended with myself and David and Paul co-teaching, Entering the Heart of Shiva. I'll be teaching that in Japan starting at the end of May on the 29th. You say in Japan, is that going to be though, the one I did was online. So is this online or is this an in-person one? Well, we're actually going to be doing some in-person as we do. We're going to use video conferencing with in-person. So if you're in Kyoto and you can come to the studio, we're going to hold sessions here so we can gather students together in a very live setting. And at the same time, if you're too far away to attend in a physical way, we're going to go with uh, setting up uh, this technology that you can see what's going on and you can interact with everyone. That's really cool. That's nice. So yeah, we're going to see how it goes. It's kind of an experiment, but we're very excited about it. I'm very excited about presenting this here. And it's an amazing course. It's the first course that my teacher, Paul, presented. And he presented it for a decade. And now he's allowed the teachers that he has initiated into the teacher step into authorized teachers to step forward and start to co-teach this with him. And then he graciously allowed me to present it in Japan this year on my own. So So I'm very excited about it. Very cool, Mark. Very cool. And then on my website, there's other things as well. You can see I've got stuff coming up. I'll be in Lisbon, Portugal, doing some workshops and stuff like that. So Awesome. We'll include a link to that in the show notes for sure to your site. Well, Mark, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for making the time. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Adrian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And we could speak more, of course, all the time. So it's just amazing. So I look forward to the next time we get to chat, we get to talk a bit. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been really a pleasure. Sounds great, Mark. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. All right. Take care. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hacking the self. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.